1: Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. For 175 years, The Economist has been asking difficult questions, and it's taken a stand. To mark this anniversary, The Economist is launching Open Future across all of our platforms, continuing our founding mission. Today, we're asking whether we still have reason to be optimistic for the future, for all the tribulations and setbacks. At The Economist, we've supported our fair share of controversial causes in defence of free markets and open societies. We've opposed the protectionist corn laws in Britain. We've argued against capital punishment and for decolonisation. And as society has changed, well, so have we. In the last decades, we've embraced gun control and same-sex marriage. But as the liberal values that underlie such causes face new threats, Is liberal progress itself in danger? With me to discuss that is Steven Pinker. He's professor of psychology at Harvard University and author of 10 books, including The Better Angels of Our Nature. His latest, Enlightenment Now, argues that pessimists have got it all wrong. Progress is real. And Steven makes the case for radical or at least rational optimism. Steven Pinker, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. Are you an optimistic soul by temperament or just by academic leaning?
0: (laughs) I think by empirical inspiration. It was really uh, an examination of data that that, uh, gave me the reputation of being an optimist. Namely, I had stumbled across datasets that had shown unmistakable signs of, of human improvement, beginning with a graph that simply plotted homicide rates in England from the fourteenth century to the, the present, which indicated that a contemporary Englishman has about one thirty fifth the chance of being murdered as his medieval ancestors. Now is that op- which
1: is reassuring to us as we speak in London today. I'll dive straight into that use of of data or that kind of approach which is very much your Hallmark. I suppose the question for the human being at the other end of it is, well, yeah, great, you know, I'm less likely to be murdered than I was back in the 15th century by a considerable margin. But is that way of taking a sort of chance to show progress? Is Is that an adequate way to address how people feel about
0: progress grinding to a halt? Well, a graph on objective indicators of human well-being is not the same as a readout of people's uh, emotions or fears or worries. To the extent that we're uh, educated, rational people, uh, we should bring our concerns in line with the, uh, the objective facts. We should worry about genuine threats, not worry about spurious ones.
1: But what, in concrete terms, what do you think humanity is doing better now, qualitatively better at rather than just things that can be avoided or phased out because we have better health, better technology, better education? What do you think we've actually, as a species, got better at doing that we used to do quite badly?
0: Uh, Avoiding war between nations would be one of them. The great powers were constantly at each other's throats for centuries of uh, European history there hasn't been a great power war since 1953 when the united states fought china in, in uh, korea and uh, wars of all kinds have been going into decline but particularly wars between between nations classic wars where nation a declares war on nation b they uh, bring out their tanks they bomb each other's cities they have big naval battles that is uh, uh, seems to be going out of style
1: does uh, it i mean syria uh, iraq uh, one possible way it is that warfare has changed; that the cycles are shorter; that the combatants are not the global powers. But if you look at the the, the devastation and the human cost of something like Syria, it would be hard to say that bombing cities is going out of fashion.
0: Well, Syria is a civil war, although it's an internationalized civil war because there are, which is one of the reasons why it's uh, so so vicious. Uh, interstate wars tend to kill more people than civil wars. Internationalized civil wars are, are somewhere in between, as uh, Syria is. And Syria, which is the, uh, by far the worst war in a generation, doesn't negate overall decade-by-decade decade trend toward fewer wars and fewer deaths in war. So even with a Syrian civil war, the global rate of death in warfare is less than what it was in the 1980s, which saw the uh, Iran-Iraq War, the um, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the resistance, also a very bloody war. The Vietnam War in the 60s and the 70s, civil wars uh, throughout Africa and Latin America in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s, the Korean War in in the uh, 50s, massively destructive wars that we we don't think of as humanitarian catastrophes, even though they truly were. One of the reasons for our misperception of the trajectory of the world is that our moral standards have risen so that we see catastrophes in human terms more than our ancestors did. And we confuse a rise in our standards with a sink in the state of the world.
1: Well, that's interesting. It brings me to the question of democracy and the state of democracy around the world, which we've also addressed in a a recent podcast, actually, with another guest, an author from Harvard, who was concerned that it was in decline, I'm guessing you don't overall uh, share that view. But people would look perhaps at, at the last decade, they'd see a rise of populist movements, they would see uh, Donald Trump being elected in the US. If you're inclined to think the European Union is a good thing, you, you might think that Brexit is, has something to do with it, even if it is, is not in itself necessarily. Uh, backward looking, it sort of feels like it's a a reaction against a sort of business as usual. Doesn't that su- suggest that progress is halting at the very least?
0: Well, progress couldn't possibly consist of improvement of everything, always, everywhere. And so, of course, there are going to be uh, setbacks. Of course, there are going to be problems. But they are set against a backdrop of also unmistakable improvements, improvements in uh, lifespan, in education, in uh, safety, in peace. And, of course, this doesn't occur everywhere all the time. But these are are overwhelming. Well, aren't you just going
1: going around the elephant a bit here? I mean, (laughs) the election of Donald Trump as president of the United States has several risks attached to it. And one of them would seem to be that it questions or puts a a roadblock on a particular interpretation of progress. I don't just mean what, you know, left liberal academics in the US think. of it. It it is a different way of approaching American power in the world. It sits uneasily with the narrative, a broader narrative of outward-looking engaged America. Why is that not such an exception that it worries you more?
0: Well, it does worry me. And it does. uh, Certainly, the policies and mindset of Donald Trump challenge many of the forces that have actually given us the progress that we've enjoyed. In particular, it is a rejection of the Enlightenment ideals of a global community of international cooperation, of the primary target of our concern being the, the well-being of the individual, as opposed to the glory of the state, of commerce and trade as forces that make us globally both richer and nicer, that is more, more likely to cooperate economically rather than compete in, in uh, war. So absolutely, the election of Donald Trump is not an example of progress, and it represents a, a pushback against some of the forces that have given us progress. It doesn't, though, mean that, that we haven't had progress. It's still true that life expectancy is not 30, even though Donald Trump has been elected. It is still true that there are no wars going on in Western Europe or Southeast Asia or Latin America. Again, the existence of progress is not the kind of thing that can be overturned with the result of a single election, at least not yet.
1: You're a psychologist by by background. I mean, that's, you know, your academic expertise in which you you base a lot of your arguments. What is it about our biases, do you think, that that make us think things are going from bad to worse?
0: One bias is called the availability heuristic, that we estimate risk and danger by memorable examples rather than by statistical data sets that aggregate both the bad things and the good things. Good things tend to be unnoticeable. They're not photogenic. A country that is at uh, peace city that hasn't suffered a terrorist attack, almost by definition are not news. Uh, Wherever violence does occur or disease or poverty, that does make news. And since our intuitions are driven by memorable examples, as long as the rate of bad things hasn't fallen to zero, there'll always be plenty of examples for the, uh, the media to serve us and they will Uh, affect our perception. There's also a a negativity bias in human nature that we tend to be vigilant about things that can go wrong and are more affected by losses and dangers than by safety and gains. And so our general attitude with the presence of risk is is, uh, to worry about it and to opine about it in giving our impression of the state of the world as a whole.
1: You, you do seem to blame the media for feeding pessimism. I think one of the many charts uh, in your book suggests that uh, media coverage has got significantly more negative over the the, the last century. Is that because it's, it's feeding a, a sense of desire for bad news or is it your kind of heuristic argument that uh, it's actually a cognitive bias and we can't escape it.
0: Yeah. There are recent data that suggests that the belief that negative news sells may be a uh, a myth, that it's often the positive stories that get the most clicks and and shares and eyeballs, and that the major media industries may even have to calibrate their strategy in the purely mer- mercenary attempt to at financial stability and, and growth. Uh, certainly- I, I'm going
1: to challenge that as a, you know, old news executive. I remember someone, there's a great, great line in a, a comedy about a small newspaper. He says, you know, we're not the independent. We can't just put a dolphin on the front page. People do see their own anxieties, their own fears reflected in media coverage. Are they necessarily wrong, even if, as you say, if they sat down with you and you took them through the graphs, the charts, and the broader narrative? they might grudgingly accept they're right. There is something about it that seems to capture the way they feel.
0: Yes, there is. Uh, putting aside the financial question of which attracts the most readers and viewers, what is the responsible level of coverage of journalism? And clearly, there's an imperative to report injustices and suffering and, and failures where they occur. I suspect that the calibration of contemporary journalism is, a little, is too far on the pessimistic side, because not everything goes wrong everywhere always. And there's a Complementing the danger of complacency if people aren't aware of the uh, crises of the day there's a danger of fatalism if people are led to believe that nothing that people ever attempt as a solution could ever succeed there's a danger of uh, radicalism that if the current system is so irredeemable, if everything is a disaster, then we should just burn it to the ground and, and whatever arises in its place is bound to be better so i i, I don't join in the chorus of criticism of the mainstream media we need a more vigorous press. But I do suggest the calibration is a little bit too far in the direction of relentless uh, negativity. For that matter, even the responsibility of holding the powerful to account has to acknowledge that some problems are solvable that have been solved because that doesn't let politicians off the hook in saying that a problem is so intractable that there's nothing that anything, there's nothing anyone can, can do about it.
1: Now, let's come to the big uh, equality question, which lurks at the heart of so many of these, these arguments, doesn't it, about how we view the world now and what we think is... Is getting better or worse? We hear much more about rising inequality. It can end up in a bit of a dead end argument, frankly, about how we measure it. It's something that you know we we, we try to cover in depth at uh, uh, the the Economist. But if you had to make you know to, to balance that pessimism about rising inequality, and I think particularly perhaps a younger generation feeling very angry about this or cross about it, and the facts. How would you assess global inequality?
0: Well, global inequality is decreasing because poor countries are getting richer faster than rich countries are getting richer. But both inequality among nations and inequality, as best we can measure it, among people globally uh, has been in, in decline. Inequality within rich nations, particularly English-speaking rich nations, has, uh, has increased. Some of them in particular, in the United States and England, inequality is increasing. In others, like Scandinavian countries, in Germany, not nearly as much.
1: But if you're living in a country, let's take America, take Britain, for instance, as, as examples here in the English-speaking world, would you be right to claim that inequality and a big rise in inequality or persistence of it is a major problem or should you be saying, you know what, it's not as bad as Jeremy Corbyn saying or whatever? Yeah,
0: I, I don't think that income inequality per se is a problem. I think there are other problems that often correlate with income inequality, one of them being the fate of the poor. These aren't the same thing because an economy is not a, a fixed pie. It's not a zero-sum game. Morally, we ought to be concerned with how well the poor are doing, not with how well the rich are doing. And in terms of people's intuitions, they're really driven more by a sense of of, uh, fairness than by a sense of equality per se. You can have an unequal society where people are perfectly happy, countries like Singapore and Hong Kong, where as long as people don't feel that the rules are stacked against them, they're very happy for there to be rich people. And in fact, in in, uh, developing countries, inequality actually – causes greater happiness and optimism because people think that there's a uh, a path upward for their children. Conversely, in countries like Venezuela, which has achieved greater equality, the country is miserable and they have good reason to be miserable. Their uh, fate is really worse off. So I think the two issues of fairness and the uh, straits of the poor are both significant. Inequality per se is a distraction.
1: I think it's the kind of argument you make that sometimes riles your critics, that they think it is a bit glib. We spoke to Nicholas Taleb, for instance, on this podcast recently, and he's attacked your writing in quite rude terms.
0: Hasn't read it, but but attacks it, yes. Are you sure he hasn't read it? Yes. How do you know? Oh, because he accuses me of neglecting topics that that uh, are discussed for 20, 30 pages.
1: Well, he's spoken for himself on that. But is he onto something? As in, there is something that people find a bit irksome about this kind of glad, confident, morning Doctor Pangloss approach to well, enlightenment.
0: Well, uh, Pangloss was a pessimist. He said, "This is the best of all possible worlds," and I think the world can be much better than it is today. It's not Panglossian to say that people live uh, to the age of eighty today, and then two hundred years ago they lived to the age of thirty. Is that Panglossian or is that an objective statement of fact? It's not Panglossian to say that the rate of extreme poverty has fallen to less than 10%. That's just a fact. That's not Panglossian. It's not Panglossian to say that there are no wars in Southeast Asia or Western Europe or Latin America, but there there used to be. Uh, that's a fact. It's not Panglossian to say that the rate of homicide in the United States has fallen by 50% in a couple of decades. That That's a fact. People are so incapable of, of even grasping the very idea of progress that they consider a simple readout of the data to be uh, Panglossian.
1: But Taleb's argument might be, and I'm referring to paraphrase because you not here with us, is that, uh, you know, in his sort of black swan theories, that bad stuff or events or unforeseen do come along. So maybe he's focusing on that. You're focusing on... More well, actually, I, I, I mean, basically, yeah. why is he
0: so down on you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you'll, you'd have to ask him that. But in fact, both in The Better Angels of Our Nature and in Enlightenment now, um, I, I do discuss so-called thick-tailed distributions. That is the fact that there's a non-negligible probability of a catastrophe. I don't cite uh, Taleb because he wasn't the first to, to make that point. It was Lewis Fry Richardson. But uh, both can be true. It can be true that there are rising fortunes, but there's also a, a uh, significant... Risk of a uh, catastrophe, and I and I I do deal with that, and uh, deal with the ways in which we can and ought to minimise the uh, the risk of catastrophic events.
1: You mentioned the decline of religious faith as being likely to benefit the world as more people turn to reason or really sort of non-religious uh, sort humanism. Of ways, humanism, is that's yes, a good phrase to to solve their problems. Thank you. Uh, don't you worry that this argument might repel a lot of people who are very reasonable religious people who also feel that religion has been part of of progress. It's often taken the edge off well their civilized ways of, of dealing with each other, and that it motivates people. For the good, are you being a, a bit harsh on religion.
0: First of all, it depends on the religion. I mean, people often give us an example: the um, Quakers' campaign for the abolition of slavery, and that is to be praised. But to put it mildly, not all religions are Quakerism. <laughs> While I think religious, are you,
1: how are you trying to say that some religions are inherently less progressive than others? And would you name names? You
0: well, know, some religions are less progressive than others. At least, but the thing is that, that religions themselves are, well, um, which are not targets. progressive. Well, right now, um, it's very hard to argue that mainstream Islam is a progressive force for gender equality, for tolerance of homosexuality, for peace. All of the ongoing wars today have a radical Islamist force as one of the factions. But Um, you
1: said mainstream Islam wasn't in itself. And you you, think it is not inherently... Attuned to or doesn't sit happily with a progressive view. society. am I right? I don't know. Uh, cer-
0: certainly, um, uh, Orthodox Islam uh, has not been, but but Islam itself is uh, involves may- many strands. And,
1: Islam but, now does it sit happily or not with?
0: Uh, it, it does not. And nor does nor does fundamentalist evangelical Christianity. so I think it's very hard to make the argument that faith in supernatural forces can be a progressive development because the world is not governed by miracle it's not governed by divine intervention. it's governed by the laws of nature and by human action to the extent that our policies are driven by beliefs and things that don't exist they are unlikely to result in a increase in human welfare.
1: So we have a a big project underway called Open Future, which is debating how societies can stay more open, what are the challenges uh, to that, and and taking on some of the arguments that are often raised against uh, progress. Why should we be optimistic here at The Economist, based as we are on Enlightenment values, uh, the kind that you broadly celebrate in your book, why should we be optimistic about an open future? Uh,
0: I think the right question is, what can we do to ensure an open future? Uh, I don't think we can gaze into the future and say that things will get better. I think that's as irrational as gazing into the future and saying that things will get worse. What we have to do is identify what has made things better in the past and push for more of it. Make make the case that Enlightenment ideals have succeeded. Uh, it it could have been a naive dream if uh, at the time, 200 years later, we have the data to show that that uh, it wasn't.
1: And if there was one you can just pick out of your many books, if there was one area in which you think the challenges will be greatest to maintain that idea of an open and inclusive, a progressive uh, future for mankind, what should we be celebrating and what need we to be worrying about or trying to avoid?
0: Uh, We we should celebrate the uh, increases in the fortunes of the worst off in the world. The fact that global poverty is being decimated, that uh, children are going to school, uh, girls included, that uh, laws against homosexuality are being stricken down in country after country. does not make the news even if the setbacks do. The uh, disease is being conquered. Uh, We should acknowledge that the world has been getting safer, that when technologies are introduced, they tend to start off dangerous but But uh, we figure out how to tame them over time.
1: Great so far. And your biggest worry or concern we should address as we go through uh, open future debates in the next few months?
0: Uh, Climate change is a problem of a different order of magnitude to the ones that we've solved uh, in the past, although the world has come together to solve challenges such as the ozone hole, such as atmospheric nuclear testing, such as piracy, whaling, slavery. So there are precedents for the world coming together to solve problems, and that will need to be mustered and... Uh, increased in the campaign against global warming. Uh, I think we have to reduce the the risk of nuclear war, that that should be a much greater priority in elections than than it uh, has been. And I think we have to identify, single out, champion, and cheerlead for the values of the Enlightenment, which have been allowed to fade into the background as a kind of bland establishment. And uh, people don't even identify that these are distinct values that have had a track record of success and uh, ought to be celebrated.
1: Stephen Pinker, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And of course, we want to know what you think. Go to www.economist.com openfuture to join our debate on how technology, freedom and trade should shape our future. You can email us at radio or you can tweet us at Economist Radio using the hashtag openfuture. Do get involved and please don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist.